Welcome to Clear and Present. On this podcast, I'm chatting with people I find interesting who are exploring what it's like to exit alcohol culture. I'm Brian Fulcher, and I'm here to learn, be curious, and open. I'm also here to get clear and present, and I'm inviting you to come along for the ride. On today's episode of Clear and Present, I get to talk with Jennifer Good, who is a non-drinking, carceral abolitionist and psychotherapist. Jen goes by the pronouns she and they, and I hope you enjoy this meandering and expansive conversation that we had about stereotypes of people who have coped with addiction, about people who've done harm in society and how we how we work with that, about the privilege of the access to recovery. And then finally about the word sober and purity culture and how that all fits. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So hello, Jennifer. Thanks for joining me on Clear and Present. Hi, Brian. What a privilege, an absolute privilege to be here. Um, Thank you for facilitating my first podcast experience. Well, I know that we've had some really interesting conversations. So I've been chomping at the bit to hit record at what we talk about because you are a very interesting person. I was thinking today, I had heard um, someone talking about their sobriety and they were the, the way that they were framing it made me think about the stereotypes of sobriety and people getting sober. And I wondered if you um, did any, have done any thinking about those stereotypes. Oh gosh. They feel, they feel a bit endless, don't they? They do. Yeah. And Perhaps some of them have a kernel of truth because we all bring our beliefs about sobriety when we enter it to the table. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, what do you mind me asking? What what particular stereotypes were you running into, or, or was this person talking about? Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean the the one that jumped out for me um, when I heard them talking about their story was the idea of lying, and you know, that people who who are in active addiction are liars when you are using your liar. And then it made me think of the Annie DeFranco line. And I don't know if you listen to Annie DeFranco, but there's a line in one of her songs that just, just made me lose a, like a modicum of like respect for Annie DeFranco. And it was, you know, um, is he different? Has he changed? Um, or is he just a liar with nothing left to lie about? Oof. I know, right? Yeah, that's not that's not attractive. Um, but yeah, I, I too have had a love for Ani DeFranco in my life. I think I think my love kind of changed when she organized a singer songwriter workshop at a former plantation. Oh yeah, that too. Oh. Yeah, that, that that was too bad. But um, yeah, you know, we're all making mistakes and growing all the time, but. The addict is a liar or the, the person using substances as a liar is a, it's cruel. Mm-hmm. 
it's cruel. I, I think that as a culture, we've really come a long way in understanding the correlation of shame and trauma. And I think it, it gets a bit lost on me when folks don't know how to calibrate themselves to understand addiction as being in that sphere or substance use. Um, it's, it's challenging because I find that is so deeply embedded in the AA framework mm -hmm. um, where I've seen people actually get a lot from this discourse of thinking about their ego as a thing that is lying to them or the self-deception that they consider to be involved in their addiction when in fact I think that we're all coping to the best of our ability. I think that when there are a lack of options, when there is a lack of support, when there is a lack of resources and we have no alternatives, but we're told that the only alternative that we've found to be useful being using a substance or a, an activity is no longer a go. Mm. What presents itself as being a viable option at that point is deception. Mm -hmm. you know, so from the external form of deception, like from one to another, like, you know, I'm ruining my family with alcohol, uh, or say one was saying, I, I, I'm ruining my life with alcohol, my wife's gonna leave me, yada, yada. So I'm drinking in secret and blah, blah, blah. And all I hear there is like shame, a lack of options. Mm, um, yeah. And yeah, it's the, the difference between like feeling like the world is an unsafe place and that you, we don't, none of us have control over what happens to us. Mm -hmm. And so self-blame is, is in a weird way, a sense of control. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If, if I made the shitty thing happen, um, then I, there's more of a possibility that I could do something about it. And it means that the world at large is not a terrible place necessarily. Mm -hmm. I'm the common denominator problem here. Yeah. Um, so that was a form of talking about deception and substance dependence that I appreciated. It seemed, LOL, a little more honest. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah, we do tell ourselves all kinds of lies to cope, but Mm -hmm. But the discourse of casting people with substance dependence as liars, it just seems in my own life, I think that the only reason I have lied about alcohol consumption is due to shame and feeling a lack of other options mm -hmm. or it having held such a meaningful place in my life that I hadn't yet unraveled or untangled or found new things to associate with care and comfort that I didn't want to burden the people around me mm. with how much I was suffering, or I didn't want to burden the people around me with how limited I was in my resourcing capacities. Um, well, and, and it, in, in our current culture, it really is failing us in so many ways. Like there's, that is the option that is being offered up to, mm -hmm. and, and if you opt out of it, you have to explain why you're opting out of it. If you opt into it, nobody questions, but if you opt in too much, you're lying about it. Like it's, it's so full of 
<laughs> neoliberal gaslighting crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming because that's it too. Mm. It it really does plug into rugged individualism, neoliberalism, and the absence of recognition of privilege. Mm. Where I mean if we're going to talk about deception and lying, I mean, take a look at the alcohol industry, take a look at the tobacco industry, take a look at the fashion industry, take a look at capitalism as a whole. Mm-hmm. And no one's being like, I don't know. I feel like there's a bit more ire towards individuals who, you know, don't pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get on with it. than there is towards mm-hmm. corporations who have banked on being able to capitalize upon that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we're expected to navigate it all by ourselves. Yeah. Or build out our own our own toolkit, which yes, we do need our own individual toolkit, but um we're we're also like it, from a community perspective or a societal perspective, we're not very good at figuring out how to take care of each other when we discover that someone's in trouble. In fact, we're not really good at celebrating each other either. Um, So there's, you know, it's not surprising that the individuals falling through the cracks and and, um, looking for ways to cope. Mm -hmm. And if you've got this this thing being served up so easily and so freely um, and like with none of the layers on it, like nobody is saying here, have this drug in a glass and, um, I don't need to check in on you to see if, you know, this drug in the glass is going to affect you badly. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm going to assume that you're just doing it for fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes you are, but it's still a drug. Yeah. And it still changes your brain. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of overwhelming. And I don't know if this links to what you're, what you're saying. And so forgive me if I'm like left turning hard right now. But when we talk about people using substances as liars, it makes me think about the false binaries of carceralism where, Mm. you know, we put people who are bad, who do bad things, who are evil monsters in jail, even though like our carceral carceral system is like absolutely abusive, absolutely predicated upon violence, absolutely there to set people up to fail. Mm -hmm. And then there's good victims Mm. or absolutely victims who are have, and that requires that someone who's been victimized be perfect Perfect. in order to be a victim and it's a very easy I think it's it's become so normalized in our culture that we only can think about safety in terms of being able to split up who's who you know he he sexually assaulted some woman therefore he is a terrible person and as a survivor I you know I have a lot of feelings about people who enact sexual harm but I noticed that as a survivor, I am one of the people who have witnessed people who harm in action. And in those moments, they're actually much more, not pleasantly so, but much more intimate than we might realize in terms of seeing 
another person fully dissociate and do something terrible and all of the human experience that lives within that. And often these people are fabulous people in other areas of their lives. And that's what messes with society so much. They're like, oh, he was such a good guy. You know, he like coached my kids mm. in soccer and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, in that way, he probably is a good guy and he's got some shit. So when it comes to alcoholism or substance dependence for us to be like, users are liars. They're like this, they're like that. They, when they're using, they can't be honest with themselves, yada, yada, yada. And then there's these non-problem drinkers. So-called. Yeah, exactly. Like people who can responsibly use it, it really, it reminds me of that easy categorization because mm. in both of those circumstances, by creating the binary, we don't have to look at ourselves. Yeah. We don't. And the, and the complexities and the ambigu ambiguous nature of being human in yeah. our world. Yeah which can yeah. like blow your mind, like the more you kind of contemplate how, how complex we are as human yeah. beings and that like choices uh, aren't like a core personality. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly, exactly. And, and it's not lost on me that I, I, I don't know who listens to your podcast. And so I want to make it clear that I... I would say my life is largely dedicated to working with survivors of harm and people who have enacted harm in order to figure out how to have no more victims and also not treat people as though they're disposable. So that wasn't meant to glorify people who enact harm, but I, um, yeah, I, find I mean, tatty, there tatty needs tatty to be tatty. consequences for behaviors, right? Absolutely. Like, like, yeah, like it does, like, just because we're not saying, you know, someone's bad choice is not their core personality doesn't mean that their bad choice needs to have a consequence. Yeah. So, and the, you know, whatever that looks like, I, you know, that, that, that's the complex nature of, you know, how do we build communities that take care of each other when we have people making bad choices um, harmful choices destructive choices mm -hmm. to other people to themselves whatever exactly. yeah exactly and I I think getting clear on not sort of universally categorizing a person as this or that while also respecting that there are, that accountability and consequences are real is the minutiae of mutual aid that sometimes we stumble upon when we're, we are trying to figure out how to show up for one another mm. and how to be there for one another. Because I mean, when we're confronted with somebody who is enormously sad, but has a clean bill of behavior, let's say, like they haven't done a thing that makes society go like, Ooh, you know, it's hard because, you know, it's sad and it's sad to be around someone who's sad, let's say, but there isn't that moral dilemma that there is when you're stepping into the ring or the room with someone who has done something that is socially undesirable or socially frowned upon for good reasons. And to say like, I'm here for you. And also X, Y, Z is not a thing that we can have in our community or our family or our workplace. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah.
yeah tracks with you but it's yeah well it does I mean it's something that like many communities that I'm a part of have grappled with um you know I don't know if you've heard of the I the broken staircase um story uh I don't think so could you yeah it's an analogy right so you have a community close-knit community someone does something that harms other members of the community um is the broken staircase And so what happens is that everybody tells everybody, anyone new to the community or anyone who doesn't know about this broken staircase, how to navigate down the stairs without falling, without getting hurt. Mm -hmm. So they have to avoid the broken staircase. They have to, you know, jump over it, but the broken staircase doesn't get fixed. The community um, tries to mitigate the harm of the broken staircase by warning new members, but (laughs) they don't actually fix the problem. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But then, you know, the idea of like fixing the problem is to what kick that person out of the community, but then they go to another community and invoke a lot of harm in other communities. So it's, you know, this, how do we navigate reparative justice? I I know we're kind of going into uh, like (laughs) tangents, but that's why I love talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's basically like you know. my expertise <laughs> no but it, I think yeah it on on a lot of levels you're really poking at transformative justice versus well no just transformative yeah punitive um, which doesn't change anything all it does is is make it worse no and yeah. exactly and and then, like the caveat to that or the I mean, some people should be contained and removed from harming other people. Exactly. But what does that look like? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I have a lot of love for people who understand what it's like to live in a family with someone who is in active or on and on, on again, off again, and substance dependence like that. I think that the people who are harmed need to be centered always, like mm-hmm. whether it be interpersonal harm or, you know, and protected. Harm. Yeah. Like the onus should, I, I've part of why I've struggled because a, a good chunk of my work has revolved around understanding and working with ideas of transformative or at times restorative justice. And the tripping point for a lot of us is, well, how do we do this while also not trampling the people who have already been the most hurt? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. how do we how do we say ditch shameful approaches to or shame inducing approaches to substance dependence, or how do we ditch uh, carceral minded approaches to justice without asking the people who have already been like kicked in the canoe to carry the knapsack? It's um, yeah, yeah, it's it's serious stuff and I don't think it'll work without that mm-hmm. um which is a a part of like there's this there's this workshop going on in Kingston Ontario in a few weeks I think it's called the revolution will not be sober mm. and that piqued my interest and it's funny because I think it's working on a lot of the principles that we're kind of talking about here in terms of the privilege of sobriety or the privilege of recovery or the Mm. privileges involved in um, being able to 
be non-harmful to oneself or another. Yeah. Person. Cause you have the resources. Yeah. Like I, you know, I think about my sober journey and, you know, it, um, it doesn't look like the AA sober journey. Yeah. It doesn't, I don't count time <laughs> in the same way. Like it doesn't have yeah. the same currency as it does in AA. I feel like my sober journey was accumulative mm-hmm. and that brings up one. And well, I mean, related to the privilege is that I was able to explore all kinds of things that all fed into my ability to become someone who could then now say, I don't, that is evil shit and it doesn't belong anywhere in my life. Why? Because I have all of these other ways now mm-hmm. to address. Um, and, and also I have done this long-term accumulative work at um, uh, healing um, and no longer seeking the numbing or, or the, the need to uh, experience pleasure that's, you know, uh, predicated on use of substance and all of those things. But that's only yeah. because I could afford a therapist that I could go on retreats that I could, you know, spend time in writing workshops where I could pour out my emotions on the page where I could, you know, um, do a lot of the things that got me to this place where if, if I didn't have those things, then what, what, what are my options in many ways? And sometimes my options are to continue using substance because the world is just so damn hurtful to exist in without that blanket, without that numbing, without, you know, um, checking out mm-hmm. and, I recognize that, yeah, is like a huge piece of, you know, um, the sobriety movement in many ways, I think. Yep. Yep. No. But at the same time, I'm like, but the world keeps telling us that this is harmless, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And that you, and then you have to fight for other options. And like, if you don't have any energy to do the fights, you know, like, you know, like just even having conversation, open conversation about alcohol and how harmful it is Mm -hmm. and how it doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're (laughs) drinking it, it's harmful. Yeah. And, um, and it could be, you know, more harmful if you continue to drink it. But at the same time, I also know that drinking it um, is uh, serving a purpose um, for some people who continue to drink it because they don't have other options. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's hugely complicated. Yeah. And it, I, I, I find I sit in this tension of being like, I think I am a lot better in my life, in my sense of self, in my relationships, in my job, in every aspect of my life improves dramatically when I'm not drinking. Yeah. <laughs> and in the same breath, I'm like, I think alcohol at one point in my life absolutely saved my life. Oh, a hundred percent. I agree. Yeah. And it so did ha- for me too. 
right? And, yeah. and it's so interesting to, on the one hand, want to offer, how do I say this? Uh, to want to rally and fight for resources to be accessible to people so that if they choose to embark upon the choice to not drink, that's available to them, um, but also support them as human beings and be non-judgmental in their process of navigating while also flipping the big old bird to big alcohol and yeah. the manner in which European culture has treated, well, I mean, I think mental health care in settler societies has largely been, you know, lifting your the glass to your face. Mm-hmm. And... You're responsible, drink responsibly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but also, yeah. you know, go to war and cope with it by right. being given alcohol and cigarettes. And... Yeah, here we're going to give you this shitty society yeah. where nobody takes care of you and you actively have to deal with all this like subtle and not so subtle violence against you yeah. as a human being, whatever your identity is. We're, it, it... we're winning. We're totally winning over here. <laughs> <laughs> no but I'm a downer <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's a bit bleak but it's I also but I, I do feel a lot of hope in the same breath go ahead please. yeah exactly yeah. you feel a lot of hope I, and like like I'm just gonna like just offer this is that part it's a self-sustaining system once you step outside of it um in many ways the conundrum is that you have more energy, more power, more wherewithal, more ability to connect, feel pleasure, um, recover from depression and anxiety. Like the, 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 if you remove that, there's, there's more available to you. Yeah. Like just by removing it. Yeah. But it's like, how do you, it's a, it's a big, it's a big, uh, hill to get over um, in order to get to that other side. And that's probably why AA is so out there um, because at least there's that option that you could kind of go into an AA room to, to find the resources, but yeah, they're kind um, of the only chairlift on the hill. Yeah. Um, which is, yeah. Like, can yeah. we have more please? Like I want trails and I want, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, hiking buddies and yep. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, and it, it, to, to say like, this is even an option, you know, like you, like going to a restaurant and seeing non-alcoholic things on the menu that aren't shitty pop and kid juice boxes, you yeah. know, like to see, oh, this is actually an option and yeah. it's an adult one and it's a cool one. And it's like not looked upon like like what's your problem yeah is yeah. it your religion are you pregnant or you want antibiotics are you hungover like yeah it's no exactly I, I've recently been starting to dabble in the the seemingly flourishing non-alcoholic beverage oh, it's industry. huge yeah and I, I think it was you who was telling me I mean again murky feelings but um about how the LCBO might be opening. Oh yeah. So where I'm like, that. I don't know. You know, I, I got mixed feelings about it, but I, the non-alcoholic beverages have come a long way. Yeah, it sure has. Oh, it's uh, wild. And 
Just speaking on that, I was uh, in a little town nearby a couple of weekends ago where I discovered this little shop in St. Jacob's Market, which is like this, you know, farmer's market, um, lots of Mennonites and people like that. Anyway, there was this like um, uh, non-alcohol-free kind of pop-up shop. They're not pop-up. They're actually a regular location. Mm-hmm. And they were carrying all of these imports from all over the world. Um, uh, yeah, of wines. And so I picked up a few bottles and um, they were excellent. And it was just so much fun to have a chat with them. And they were, you know, feeling quite excited about what they were carrying. And um, it was, it was interesting too. Like I was so excited. And then I saw people walking by and they're like, Ooh, a wine shop. And then somebody said, Oh, it's alcohol free. And like, Oh, man. and they walked by. <laughs> <laughs> well, more, more for you. I am. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, you're losing out. Okay. But, but, um, but it is compelling too, that I, I I've noticed that some marketing for alcohol-free beverages they're going like we offer something as complex tasting as alcohol and so even if you're looking to be less hungover tomorrow imagine having a glass of wine and then a glass of this and then a glass of you know and you know that kind of reducing harm (laughs) yeah I I I kind of love that yeah and I don't appreciate the paternalism that goes along with opting out um where like people sort of like study your face to like look for your fucked upness or something um there's a bit of that and then in the other on the other hand it depends on who you encounter like I was talking to you a few weeks ago about going to a wedding that I was like it's gonna be booze drenched and I don't know how I feel about it and I got the bartender's to serve me every interesting thing they could think of that didn't have alcohol because I was like I'm I'm gonna really go for it and um at the end of the night my my husband he ordered a double scotch but he was uh DJing so I I got it for him and the bartender's like he looks at me and he's like is is this for you is <laughs> and he looked so freaked out like he was looking at me being like oh man, was this wedding terrible for you? And is this what, is this the drink yeah. that is you? Yeah. Like, oh no, I failed her. I didn't support her. I mean, that's very sweet at the yeah. same time. It felt less paternalistic than someone just genuinely being like, oh my God, you were the one person here who wasn't wasted. Are right. you okay? Like, yeah, it was nice. I am. Um... Or just anytime you talk about being sober, people, there's this something that happens in their head where they go, oh, I wonder what their story is. They, you know, they like how many awful stories of them hiding bottles around the house and, you know, falling down drunk and, you know, all all of the pieces of their lives are now attributed to this storyline of being an addict and, I, I'm not as gracious as I want to be around that because I feel like, oh yeah, like how about you actively drinking and what's, you know, can you think of how many ways that you, you know, in your active drinking have done things that aren't cool. Right. And, you know, it doesn't mean 
that just because someone becomes sober that 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 they had this like AA story of you know down in the ditch and mm-hmm. you know or they did and that's okay too like it's you know <laughs> well yeah it's the irony is is uh thick where it's like mm. you realize that this is like the beverage that people use to mask their trauma yeah and you're looking at me as though like Oy. and I mean yeah I, I think you and I touched on this last time we chatted about I think Holly Whitaker covers this a, f- a fair bit in quit like a woman where she talks about um you know this is the only substance where you have a problem once you quit yeah or yeah. perceived to be having a problem because yeah, you, you didn't have a problem when you were actively drinking yeah nobody's questioning your your life and your choices when you're actively drinking, but suddenly when you quit, they're, they're like looking at you differently. <laughs> sure, you're okay. <laughs> yeah, or even, I mean, are you familiar with that poet Rumi? Oh yeah. Yeah, so yeah. at the beginning of, I'm looking at the book, but my headphones won't allow me to reach it. But it's, um, one of his first poems in this book is called The Tavern. And it's, enormously astute for being probably like 1200 years old or something like that Mm -hmm. but it's uh whoever brought me here will have to take me home and he's talking about how the tavern is a place where people go in their suffering and allow their suffering to ferment like grapes until they are ready to process it Mm. and so the idea is like you take yourself there and it's a bit of a waiting period until you're in a place where you can wow. meet yourself. I, Damn, Rumi. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and look. Do you want me to grab it? No, no, it's, okay. it's like totally, totally fine. But like, I'm like thinking I have a couple of his books. Um, Coleman Banks, I think is the interpreter for some of some of his, some of the books that I have of his. But mm-hmm. I do remember reading The Tavern and like all, a lot of his poetry he you know he's talking about drinking and and drugging and you know um other states and things like that so and love and you know of course um yeah he's kind of interesting yeah Yeah, truly punk rock um Mm -hmm. yeah I, i appreciated that because the way he framed it was you know active addiction is a part of your process yeah and you know best to do it in company um which I actually you know I I think there are toxic cycles like I have a very thick and complex relationship with the bar in my hometown where Mm. I I will not step foot in there anymore because it's just a space where I'm like (laughs) that that was a lot of unresolved trauma but ultimately I do think there's a lot to be said for people for the harm reduction of being with people Oh, a hundred percent. I think that's part of the reason why AA is so strong from that perspective, like, like finding community, right? Like being able to be in a place where you can talk about your, your stuff is what's missing. And I think that's what AA actually offers up people. It's like, Hey, this is a place where you can come and and be honest and talk about your stuff with other people who aren't going to judge you. And the same thing happens in bars, right? Go there and 
blurt out all your stuff and nobody's going to judge you. They're going to laugh with you. Yeah. Or like, yeah. Or even sit quietly. You know, I, I often in, in the stages of acute trauma after an assault I went through, I would literally just go to the local pub and sit quietly and drink and not talk Mm -hmm. to anyone, but everyone was there. It gave me a sense of being around people, but it also made me notice like all of the older men who were also sitting there very quietly getting quite drunk Mm -hmm. so frequently that I was like, I don't want to judge, but by definition, like all of us here have a pretty significant problem, Um, but, but it was a space of without even trying to, it was a space of Mm non-judgment and as much as I have mixed feelings about, you know, bars, taverns, the rates of sexual harm that are enacted when alcohol is in the picture, um, you know, the rate at which families go bankrupt because someone is dealing with active addiction, all that stuff. I really, yeah. The harm on society in general. I mean, the, you've seen the scale, right? Like that alcohol is on the top of that scale of harm. Yeah. Right. Like, to the self and to society and it's above heroin and cocaine and all of those other drugs. Oh yeah. 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 Super addictive, super bad for the body, super bad for everything. But what I not, but, and um, yeah, in these drinking spaces, I think a lot of programming for substance recovery could really take notes where such as AA, I guess, uh, where you could just be there. Mm -hmm. And I personally don't find, or at least at this point in my life, I don't find AA to be a nurturing place, but I do know that say a conversation with you where I was, it became clear to me at the beginning of our last conversation that it wasn't a confessional booth but it was also um, a space where I could share as much or little as I wanted with a a quiet understanding of a collective uh, objective. Yeah. That's what's lovely. Yeah. 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 Thank you for that, by the way. Oh man. Anytime. A hundred percent. I'm like, I am, you know, that was one of the reasons why I started the podcast is I wanted to talk to people about these subjects and to have these conversations and sort them through in my head as well. Like it's, you know, uh, living in a world where you have so much pressure to comply, you know, like the other day I'm scrolling through Facebook and, uh, you know, I'm somebody posted this commercial, um, of this actor. I think he's one of the James Bond actors and he's doing this dance, you know, really cool dance and he's looking hot and looking, you know, really, you know, interesting. And, (laughs) and uh, he's an older guy and, and it's very entertaining. Right. Mm -hmm. And it probably cost a lot of money to put the, and of course you, you, you're probably already guessing what the product was that they're shilling. Mm-hmm. I mean, the end scene, he's opening up this cabinet 
that yes. glows like the heavenly heavens, you know, um, and pulls out <laughs> a bottle of vodka. And, uh, and I'm thinking like, fuck off. Like to me, I'm like, I'm watching it. And I'm like, I know it's a, I know that the vodka, big alcohol has paid so much money for this because yeah. they know it's going to be shared on social media. Cause everybody loves the dancing part, loves the, the superstar part and loves the, you know, so-called, uh, friendly, you know, behind the scenes kind of, you know, glimpse into this really um, famous director and very famous actor. Mm. And they're shilling a poison and a carcinogen. Yeah. Like, and it's big unveiling is at the end of the commercial where they unzip the liquor cabinet and pull out. <laughs> it's so um, phallic <laughs> yeah exactly right yeah. exactly right unzip and pull yeah i yeah. It, i yeah. it is infuriating because i'm like right we're we're still like i feel like because i've ex exited it somehow the world has changed <laughs> like it's, which is like completely ridiculous but in my because i think i've like curated my world so i'm like you know, whatever that word is weird, but, um, I've like decided what I want to let into my world. And yeah. then I see this and I'm just like, Oh, for real, like, yeah. like, can nobody see what this is? Yeah. It's yeah. The more time I spend not drinking, the less pretty it looks, mm. which I think most people say, and it's not that I'm sitting back like with a cranberry soda, like chortling <laughs> at how stupid people look when they get drunk. Like that's really right. not. No, it. no, no, no. It's more, you know, I, I think actually a part of why I did like there's, I could probably list like a bajillion reasons why I drank for so long, but one was, you know, as a person who has always been enormously sensitive, always been enormously empathic. I have found rooms of people working out their bulge. Yeah. And it's like, it, yeah. it's like watching people when people are sober in a room, it's like watching a lot of people working out their childhoods and working out society and working out their bullshit and then add alcohol to it. And that just escalates because their nervous systems are all over the place. You know, their hurts get a lot closer. So the compensation gets a lot louder. And um, I've found sharing space with people who are drinking is like sure they're using it to mask pain but it's also an unmasking where the pain becomes so acute that by the end of the night I'm like Jesus Christ I'm exhausted mm. like I I haven't even been drinking and this is not pretty mm, yeah and so to ha have that advertised with people in their like most prime form you know like I am all that is masculine and I've done all these things in my life and the I am I, 007 yeah and the way cap off my night is with a whatever you know it's just like so gross yeah it's really sad mm -hmm. I mean we I guess in my generation it's been so obvious with cigarette advertising but we yeah. haven't quite made the leap and like Brian like mm -hmm. I honestly think 
now that I look back, the way that I learned about gender and advertising was through my dad at the LCBO. He would take me to the LCBO when he went to go pick something up. And I was a kid. And I think, you know, remember how they used to have those cooler vats that you could stick your wine in to chill it? Yeah. Like water in a (laughs) cold bucket that you like, apparently it's okay to stick your wine in. Insta chill. Yeah. And I would just like be sticking my arm in it. And like, I don't know, like I would probably dunk my head in. And uh, if if I had the chance and in order to get me to stop doing that, he would be like, did you know that there's girl alcohol and boy alcohol? And they do that so that people buy more. My dad was a social worker. Like he, he was like really interested in that stuff. And I was like, what? And he's like, go grab three bottles that you think are for and he would use air quotes like girls and I'd be like wow and he would then be like what's what do you think they are trying to get boys to do and I'd be like like this you know and like I I would always though think the crown royal was for girls because I associated purple with like femme life um it's very Gen- luxurious. I know I mean, the bag was so the bag, yeah, the velvet bag with the gold rope on it. Yeah, but yeah, like riddled with weird '90s stuff. But I, I, I find it interesting that like the LCBO was where my dad was like, "Let's talk about gender binaries and marketing." Mm. Well, I mean, in any way that al- big alcohol is dissecting their new markets, right? Like they're they're now moving into the fit, the fit generation, like, you know, like the idea of alcohol sponsoring half marathons and running races and stuff like that um, with their healthier version, but it's just really, or even there's some question about whether one of the techniques of big alcohol is to come out with the non-alcoholic version of their beer and use that as a way to, you know, um, wedge themselves into the new market so they can, you know, promote this kind of non-alcoholic beer to kids, you know, or to teenagers or to people who are, you know, interested in health and wellness. So they, they get, they get them, uh, primed Mm -hmm. for, for the alcohol not, not to stay on the non-alcohol. It's, it's, it's like really meant to get them loyal to the brand, which is, it's a playbook from, from the cigarettes, right? Like it's about loyalty to a brand. And so there it's a way to, yeah, socialize people into that loyalty and um, keeping them stuck in that. I mean, I appreciate the non-alcoholic versions of things just because I like um, the luxury and the complexity and, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, Probably because I've, you know, been drinking wine since I was like 18. So probably, I mean, that's when I socialized myself to drink wine because before that it was beer and, you know, sweet coolers and Zimas. But you were were a grown up (laughs) when you were 18. Yeah. So I had to learn how to drink yeah. the wine like a yeah. grown up. Yeah. I, yeah. I even remember the first meal that I had red wine with. And it was, and I remember the, I remember it was Valpicella. It was a steak. 
with broccoli and mashed potatoes. And I felt like I had, you know, reached the grown-up realm. Mm-hmm. Made <laughs> it, <that>. baby. <laughs> It's like, it's so, it is so ingrained in my head that I can remember those details, you yeah. know, that that's somehow where I had kind of, yeah, made it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, there is an alcohol for every identity that we're trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's funny. Cause I worked in kitchens for a long time. And, you know, when I think about sobriety privilege, um, one place that my mind goes is to kitchen work where alcohol made it a lot harder, but it also made it possible in the same mm-hmm. breath. Um, mm-hmm. It's also like the default way that chefs apologize for being terrible to you for 12 hours a day. But I remember always being typically one of the only female identifying folks in the kitchen. When I had my drink at the end of the night, I would always order a glass of wine because I was trying to be like, I'm not one of you fuckers. Mm. I am my own woman, yeah. you know, like with big head wags. And, and it was yeah. just, it makes me sad. It makes yeah. me sad when I look well, back. We're so brainwashed. That's yeah. the thing. And like, and it's all like sophisticated marketing groups, right? Like, I mean, they're, they're, they're dumping in tons of money and tons of smarts um, yeah. to keep us, to, to do this to us. Right. Like, um, yeah, the other, the other kind of stereotype I was thinking about was, you know, the idea of stunted emotional growth, like that, that, um, I picked up in AA. Uh, I remember this from the AA language where, you know, you are the emotional age from when you quit drinking or when you started drinking, that somehow the moment that you started drinking, that's where you stopped growing. And I thinking, I call bullshit on that because like, that's just not possible because one, (laughs) you know, I started drinking at 11, 12. So (laughs) does that mean that emotionally I'm an 11, 12 year old? Um, and that negates any of the actual work that I've done on myself um, through the many, many years um, and the many, many efforts and money that I spent on kind of, uh, yeah, dealing with my stuff, even mm-hmm. though I was still drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is you some know. bullshit that is yours to call. And I absolutely agree where it's almost as though they took a page from certain psychological frameworks for traumatic brain injuries or for mm. PTSD where the, you know, there are, there are certain traumatic brain injuries that leave us operating in a way that is similar to the age we were when we had it. I, I would argue that there is often still a lot of growth and same with trauma. Like mm. I know that having experienced childhood abuse there are parts of myself like from you know the shit tons of therapy I've done where I look back and I'm like oh yeah I still got that part of myself but oh a hundred percent but they're not right they're not driving the bus no and also (laughs) like who doesn't have injured or consistencies (laughs) like who doesn't have personality traits from when they were a child that still exists 
today, I think that's pretty normal. So to say like, you weren't a grown up till you came to AA. Right. You were bad before and now you're good. That you're that, that kind of, again, going back to that binary thinking. Yeah. I also feel a bit robbed of like my fucked up inness because I'm like, you're AA. Do you realize how, like, how much more fucked up I got, like, through my career of drinking? Do not deprive me of that status. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, if anybody's been in an AA room, you know that not everybody is healthy there, too. So, (laughs) yeah. And that's not. uh, Sorry, please continue. No, no, don't go ahead. (laughs) No, that's it. That's that brings me to like, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on sobriety status. Like, it seems like in the sobriety world, there's a lot of rhetoric about what equals sober. Oh, like, yeah. You know, are you sober? California think- sober means you're not sober. If you haven't been working the program, <laughs> you're not oh, sober. Shit. Like, all kinds of criteria. Like, also, like, they also then also say that you need that it's a self-diagnosis, right? So like you're the one who is diagnosing yourself as an alcoholic. So you're the one who needs to like self-diagnose. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not really working your program. Like all of, all of this really strange stuff. I mean, and again, it might work for some people. They, I, you know, certainly talk to people who, feel very strongly that they they that identity is very important (laughs) to 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 declare themselves an alcoholic I myself I don't want to um I don't like that identity to me it's like I used to smoke too does does it mean I have to walk around saying I'm an ex-smoker all the time like it's not a part of my personality Mm -hmm. I'm a human being um who um, used drugs, which is alcohol is in that bucket, um, to cope with a lot of things. And I continue to use it, um, to find some homeostasis. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I also had like all of these belief systems attached to what it was doing for me. Right. Like I, I believed that it was helping me cope with my anxiety. I believed it was helping lift me out of depression. I believed that it supported me having fun. I believed, you know, um, it was giving me company when I was by myself. I, you know, there was Mm -hmm. all of these things that I believed about the substance, which I've unraveled and, and proven to be not true. And uh, so now it's to me, it's like, yeah, I'm totally over that X. Like it's, <laughs> they're out of my life. <laughs> Can't con me anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, so, but I don't have to like identify as like the X of the alcohol, you know, like <laughs> truly, truly. Oh man. I, the one I did, that was, I dumped. did date Jerry, but I'm not in the X squad. I am. Um, <laughs> yeah. The Jerry. one who dumped or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So weird. Yeah. It's weird. Cause I mean, I don't know how I feel about it because on the one hand, like you said, if AA works for somebody, get it, you know, get it. If it's your thing, that is so great. But Mm -hmm. I also, 
the ambiguity of what equates to sobriety and the rhetoric rhetoric around it makes me so frigging uncomfortable where Mm -hmm. I don't know I don't really consider like the maybe and maybe this I just it just occurred to me that your podcast is called present and sober but um I don't know if like peak living isn't necessarily always wanting to be fully present you know and well soothing is like um for me I think peak living is being present Mm -hmm. um but um I need to be able to contain the presence um if it involves past trauma or current Mm -hmm. trauma um so I've been able to learn how to be fully present for that, but keep it contained. Yeah. So it doesn't spill out. Like, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? So like, I don't have to be fully present to all of my trauma every day, every second of the day. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and that's not what I mean by present. I, I no. like, you know, like it, from that perspective, like I, I want to, I want to, um, yeah, have the freedom of choice of yeah. what I can sit with and help for how long. Mm-hmm. And then to be able to then, if I need to contain it, mm-hmm. I have the tools to contain something and I can walk away, I can soothe, I can check out if I want to from the perspective of like doing something that, you know, takes me out of that moment because mm-hmm. sometimes you need to check out of it. And that's more what I'm getting at. It's, it's, it's not, um, no, I think we're, I think we might be on the same island of understanding there where I, everything that you said, yes. And also there is a part of me, like as someone who at points in my life, I think I've legitimately lost my mind. You know, there's a part of crazy that's pretty damn fun. And, and it's, that's not to glorify suffering, but say we were talking the other day about, but can I ask you, yeah, don't, don't let me like, like no, 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 go ahead. Stop your thought. But, uh, like, like, please hold on to it. Mm That's what I'm saying. Can I ask you if the idea of crazy is checking out of this crazy world? Well, that's it. Like what, you know, for me, it was there had been so many overwhelming and sort of wild things that had happened, like unbelievable things that my ability to process reality started to get very, I I would, I would, in retrospect, I would say like I had episodic psychosis as a result of having disassociation. Yeah. And also, you know, paranoia or Mm. um, yeah, it got pretty wild but that was because there had been so many presentations of things that were profoundly unrecognized by society, unspoken about and harmful, that calibrating what was and was not going on around me became so challenging that on the one hand, it was a a terrible place to be because I don't think anyone enjoys, you know, thinking that a rapist is outside of their house, you know, but on the other hand, it was, there was a corner of my mind during those times where I was like, oh my God, 
the way we have constructed this place is completely not, um, I'm sorry, it's not um, reflective of the experiences of most people. Mm. And there's something free folly about that because from for me, what comes from that is a bunch of existential like, well, can anything be real? That's really cool. And this this sounds maybe asinine, but I get the same feeling when I jump in the river when it's minus, like when the, when the river's at eight degrees and mm-hmm. it's super cold. There's this feeling of like losing control and maybe danger, but I actually know it's safe because I'm like, I'm not going to die. I'm just jumping in a river. And mm-hmm. um, it's this sort of feeling of like uncomfort, and kind of going out of my mind, but it's, it is contained. Mm-hmm. I know I can leave the river. Yeah. And so in that moment, I wouldn't say that I'm entirely sober or present. Like my, my mind is panicking all over the place. You know, my body feels completely dysregulated. Everything like there's a component of panic and fear. And then there's a component of feeling drawn to that because, you know, trauma, danger, there's, yeah. There's a relationship there that isn't necessarily the the excitement versus fear. Yeah. Like they get melded together somehow and you kind of don't know what the difference is. Exactly. And like for a lot of folks who have dealt with trauma, like danger is very alluring. Mm -hmm. And so I've wondered, I'm like, I wouldn't consider myself to be entirely sober in moments when I'm like plunging myself into entirely cold and uncomfortable water. But I, I think know. a lot I... of people would think that's sober. And I don't know. And I mean, in a way, I feel like the word, like, what is it? Like, this is not a purity test, right? Like, yeah. like we're not looking for sobriety to be this state of purity, right? Yeah. Like, and also... I think leaning into discomfort is like a really human, full, awe-inspiring thing to do. Mm -hmm. Like jumping into cold water is like incredibly thrilling. Um, and And it does actually like create endorphins afterwards, right? Like getting tattoo does, right? Like the same, like you can, you know, it's painful, but your body starts creating all of these endorphins and you there's this pain pleasure threshold that you're playing with um and whether that is the definition of sobriety or not to me is like less important like yeah I I feel like that is about seeing the extent of what your humanness is and like playing with the edges and knowing that you you can survive them and that that's retraining. Yeah. Right. It's retraining, you know, your, um, the, yeah, you, it's retraining things from a cognitive dissonance perspective, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, that we do have so much potential, um, to heal ourselves and we have so much potential as human beings to like change the world. Right. Like, yeah. and this is a part of the work, I think, but checking out using, a substance that takes your prefrontal cortex offline that makes you impulsive, even when you're not even using the drug, um, that, uh, stops you from caring about shit, including yourself. Um, you know, like uh, I could list all of the, the things that happen using 
alcohol in particular, um, that, that remove you from the world. Yeah. I think that that to me is about the, the presence, the, the, the clear and the presence. Um, so yeah, so the po- podcast is clear and present. It's not sober. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's, that is 100% okay. Because like we're talking about the, this, that, that um, they're, you know, sober is actually a part of the title of the podcast because I do want to talk about sobriety. Absolutely. And sober, sober life. It's, uh, yeah. I'm dead on the inside right now. No, no, man. You know, there is another podcast called Sober and Present and it's really good and you should check it out. So it is really good. No, it is really good. And, yeah. and, and I'm so sorry. Oh gosh. Wow. Um, you don't need to apologize at all. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you just got it so much right there where what spins through my mind when I'm thinking about sobriety and presence, I think there's a cultural imagery of sobriety and I think for for me what comes up is like very sensible church shoes and like uncomfortable clothing and um like the cult yeah Yeah. like a cultural (laughs) image of um that really comes from the moral hygiene movement the yeah like purity stuff yeah like that kind of stuff and the lack of acknowledgement of how many ways there are, how many things we can fuck with that are healthy. Mm, Yeah. You know, how many ways we can find ourselves kind of intoxicated with experience in a way that also provokes growth Mm -hmm. and, and awe. Yeah. And acknowledgement of our capacity to keep ourselves safe. Like when I'm jumping in that river, I most definitely know I can leave and that there's a shower on the other end. Yeah. You know, whereas there are a lot of hangovers where I've wondered whether I'm actually going to die. Gonna... Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it, yeah, so yeah. It's, it's a tricky field for, for my head to get around sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I chose the name clear and present because in my mind it's clear and present danger because it is like to live a life without substance is a scary place to navigate. Yeah. Cause suddenly you are presented with all the things that you want to escape sometimes, right? Like um, feelings. Yeah. You know, like uh, it's, if you haven't had a lot of practice processing, working through them, um neutralizing or integrating whatever like all of those things it's it can feel like a clear and present danger yeah oh absolutely absolutely but it's worth it because the more you do it the more you can do it that's it you just kind of yeah it's like leveling up <laughs> uh, yeah i know it, it and it's it's riddled with badassery in that sense like I I joke about Rumi being the most punk rock but frankly I think folks who figure out how to be present with themselves and the world and the world are absolutely the most punk rock and I mean I think we see that 
in no matter what our jobs in various parts of our life, but I have the privilege of every day working with wonderful people who are in the process of trying to figure out how to show up and be present for themselves in the world. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, it's such a treat because it looks so different for every single person. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's a really good point when you say that it looks different for every single person. And that's where like the addiction treatment industry is failing us. Yeah. Um, the idea that there's one way that fits all and yeah. that it, there's no room for customization and individualization and all of those pieces. It's just, yeah. But, yeah. you know, I, I, um, I want to just res be respectful of our time and yeah. um, we have talked a lot and everything is uh, what we talked about. I want to, I would like to invite you back so we can talk more because I do also want to talk to you about some of the, the uh, techniques that you're using with oh. your, with your people. And okay. um, yes, and we haven't, we didn't get there, but you know what? Let's do it Let's do on it. another episode. 1000%. What a, what a privilege to share some space with you and just to rap about this stuff and get to know you a bit better. And mm -hmm. thank you for the work you're doing. And I can't wait to listen to every single one of your podcasts and I'll get the name right next time. I also can't <laughs> wait to read your forthcoming memoir. <laughs> yeah, like... I don't, know how, I, don't, I don't know how forthcoming it'll be, but certainly I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm going to live for a long time. So <laughs> take your time. And look, likewise, Jen, I, um, I uh, just really enjoy it every single time that we get into talking about this stuff. It's fascinating talking with you and um, all the tangents we go on. They're so very interesting. Um, but thank you so much for uh, sharing your time with me and with the listeners. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more info about this episode on the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe, rate, and review. And give me a follow on social. I'm at Clear and Present on Instagram. So in this episode, Jennifer mentions the poem, The Tavern, by the poet Rumi. So I thought I would add an epilogue of the poem for you to take a listen to. Here's the poem. In the tavern there are many wines, the wine of delight in color and form and taste, the wine of the intellect's agility, the fine port of stories, and the cabernet of soul singing. Being human means entering this place where entrancing varieties of desire are served. The grape skin of eagle breaks and pouring begins. Fermentation is one of the oldest symbols of human transformation. When grapes combine their juice and are closed up together for a time in a dark place, the results are spectacular. This is what lets two drunks meet so that they don't know who is who. Pronouns 
no longer apply in the tavern's mud world of excited confusion and half-articulated wantings. But after some time in the tavern, a point comes, a memory of elsewhere, a longing for the source, and the drunks must set off from the tavern to begin to return. The Quran says, we are all returning. The tavern is a kind of glorious hell that human beings enjoy and suffer and then push off from in their search for truth. The tavern is a dangerous region where sometimes disguises are necessary, but never hide your heart. Keep open there. A breaking apart, a crying out into the streets, begins in the tavern, and the human soul turns to find its way home.